Welcome to the Sunday morning service at Bible Baptist Church in Hampton, Georgia, where the Bible is opened and explained. Christians are encouraged and Christ is lifted up. Thank you for joining us and may your hearts be blessed as God's word is taught. And now, enjoy this message from Pastor Lauren Regeer. John chapter 2, if you're there, I will take a look at some of these verses. We appreciate Jason reading these verses for us. I'll just read the first couple or three here uh, to set things in context. And the third day, after, of course, the announcement that there's the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world, the choosing of the disciples. Uh, There was a marriage in Cana of Galilee. Nathaniel was from this area. Maybe somebody uh, that he knew. Could have been, of course, not far from where Jesus grew up in Nazareth. He may have known this wedding couple. Certainly his mother, as we find out later in the text, was invited. And the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus was called and his disciples invited to the marriage. And when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus whispered unto him rather desperately. I'm adding that, of course. They've run out of liquids, beverages, no wine. And she spoke to Jesus about this need. Today, we're going to look at the very inception of Uh, Of course, the ministry of miracles, John will highlight eight miracles. In fact, every time John uh, speaks of miracles, the Greek word is signs. There are, of course, Greek words for miracles and wonders, but the signs are what is the Greek word that is used, uh, semion, for these wonder-working displays of God's power. We're starting here with the inception of his ministry. Father, we commit our time together to you. In the Word, I pray that you would help us learn principles about your wonderful grace and mercy and love for mankind. We thank you that you're compassionate enough to be concerned about what's on the menu at a wedding. Thank you for honoring this wedding with your presence. And then, Lord, we're grateful for how your displays of mercy point our hearts to enjoy the character of God displayed in human flesh. As we see your ministry unfold, unfurl, we're grateful for how you, in, in steps and in, by measure, by degree, help us to see that you are indeed Christ, the Son of the living God. Today, I pray again that we'll take home something that we could apply to our lives, learn about your wonderful character. We're thankful for this time together in Jesus' name. Amen. We are at the inception the start of the Lord's public ministry. Of course, as you think about our, just our, our, our time together in this, so would you guys advance the slide for me for some, here we go. It might help if the preacher would turn this thing on. There it is. We think about our theme verse in the Gospel of John from the end of the book, chapter 20 and verse 31. And these are written that you might believe. We've entitled this series, Christ is Our Life. What are we supposed to believe? That Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through His name. If you have life spiritually this morning, it's because you've met Jesus. It's because He's given you His life, nothing good in us. But when Christ uh, regenerates us, He gives us His nature. He gives us a new nature and His life that's eternal. But let's catch up a little bit. We've, uh, of course, spent some time last week discovering a little bit about six principles of discipleship. We added to each, uh, each point, we added a word. What is it about? Discipleship is about Jesus, about following Him. He asked us the question, why are you following me? This morning, 
I hope you've answered that question. It's not for health, wealth, and prosperity, I hope. It is for a fact that you are following Christ because you need what he offers, his salvation, his life. And then a disciple truly is asked the question by the Lord, uh, or Philip excuse, asked the question to the Lord, how did you know me? Nathaniel says, how do you know me? And uh, for Nathaniel, it was enough to know that Jesus saw him under the fig tree and knew it in his heart. And then uh, the question that, that really gives us incentive as we follow Christ is there are great things in store for the Christian, amen? <laughs> Not only abundancy in this life, but in the life to come. And then a, a true disciple, if he's truly a disciple, will win others to Christ. And I encourage you in the days ahead, even in our absence, while some of us are in Africa, that you would be inviting folks to church. We have a great lineup of speakers. They're listed for us in the bulletin. But folks, you're going to be well cared for in the days, the short days, the two Sundays that our team has gone. And so I just trust that you will be leaning forward into the calling of a disciple to invite others. So neat today to see quite a few new faces. That does my heart good. It means you're doing your job of inviting folks, not only to church, but to Christ himself. Well, that was last week's lesson. I always want to try to do a little bit of a throwback. And then this morning, we're going to talk about the first miracle or sign um, performed by Christ. And we're reminded that this beginning of miracles Christ did in Cana, which wasn't far from where he lived. And why did he do this? He wanted to manifest forth his glory. I've already mentioned as I've prayed, the glory of God. It's an interesting phrase here. The sense is that this display of his power and his glory is designed to be a progressive revelation to us, not only of his mighty power, his authority, sovereign authority, but it was to remind us of his wonderful compassion and mercy upon us. It's an important thought as we begin uh, this morning's lesson from John chapter 2. Well, where has Jesus been? Uh, we do know that the Bible says of John the Baptist, who in chapter 1 pointed at Christ and said, Behold the Lamb, John the Baptist was in hiding in the wilderness until the time of his coming forth. Where was Jesus for 30 years? Now, we're beginning his earthly ministry in terms of his public ministry. Where has he been? What has he been doing? It's an interesting question, isn't it? The Bible is fairly silent about Christ and his early days. We know that early on, Christ was announced, even to Mary before Christ was born. Remember Luke chapter uh, one, we see the, 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 the angel, Luke chapter 2, and 1, is just giving us the purpose of the Christ child, that he would come, he would be born the son of David, the, the king that is to be revealed, and Mary knew that, and she pondered and kept these things in her heart. We know that at age 2, what happened, or thereabouts, he was whisked away, or before he was to his whisked away where? To Egypt, where he was kept in hiding. Out of Egypt, the Lord called his son in accordance to the fulfillment of Scripture. We came back, and all we know is at age 12, something happened. What happened there? He went to the temple, as their custom was, as good Jews. They went to the temple during the feast days, and there his parents lost him. 
Parents, raise your hand if you've ever lost. No, don't raise your hand. But uh, his parents lost the Son of God. <laughs> where is he, they said. And they found him where? Uh, not at the mall. They found him at the temple. And what was he doing? He was discussing with the doctors of the law, the elders, the things that were contained in Scripture. And those around this little 12-year-old boy were, were amazed, what? At how much he knew. After all, he wrote the book. Can you imagine ladies homeschooling that child? Well, we know that he was schooled, of course, by the elders of the temple. He had to learn the Pentateuch and the writings of the law, Moses, the prophets. And he grew up, and, and uh, can you imagine, though, uh, trying to teach Jesus anything? Uh, no, that's, that's not how the stars work. I, I, I formed those in a word. <laughs> I don't know. There's a lot of mystery and speculation about his growing up days. But all we know is what Luke 2 tells us, I think verse 52, and the Lord grew in what? Stature, favor, stat favor with God and man. He grew up pretty much like a normal little human boy. He was submissive, of course, to his parents. But here we see that God now begins his public ministry. He comes out of obscurity. He comes out of the shadows, so to speak. In verse 11 we see this little phrase that the miracles, this the beginning, the first recorded miracle is what we're going to look at this morning. The beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee. And then there's that little phrase, and manifested forth his what? His glory. And his disciples, not all certainly, but many of them believed, a true disciple believed on him. The glory, and I'll say this again, that, that is spoken of here, this glory, or this spoken of in verse 11, he manifested forth his glory, is, is occurring at this moment and beyond, and it's not so much just about his raw power. Jesus never did a miracle that was not connected in some way to human need. Human uh, uh, desires and needs. He always connected his miracles. To, he never did a miracle simply to impress the crowd. Whether it's the feeding of the 5,000, the walking on water, whether it's raising the, the, the dead man there at the gates of the city in Nain, whatever it was, it was connected or healing the, bl the blind eyes, the the legs that couldn't walk. Whatever God did was in connection to a human need. And it wasn't just about, although he was validating his power, his authority, his right to be called the Son of God, that was always hand in hand with a human need. He never did something simply to impress the crowd. Often you'll see a football player make a tremendous play, get in the end zone. And what do they do with the football? They, well, sometimes they spike it. I guess that's illegal now. But I've seen him do this. Have you ever seen a football player look at the crowd and do this? I know you have. Look at me. The Lord is not doing anything to impress. This is a rather minor miracle we're talking about today. For a man that created the universe and everything that's in it. 
not a big deal to turn water into wine. And so we're seeing that there's an unfolding, progressive work, public ministry, where God is not only validating the, the authority and sovereignty of his character and his name, but he's connecting it to mercy, to the truth that we need. We need a Savior. And at the end of these eight signs that John will list in his book as we study it, the idea is not just, wow, that, it, that's truly amazing. That we would walk around and say, well, that's amazing. That God can, and only God uniquely can do that. But now I need to fall on my knees and like John declared, behold the Lamb of God, the only one, as Jason reminded us this morning, there's only one God that can forgive sins because he paid for them at Calvary's cross. The miracle of miracles is the internal reality that God can reach down and save a sinner. And God wants us to get that as we begin this journey through the miracles of Christ. Significance, the purpose of miracles. And we look today at some uh, wonderful truths. The first truth, the first truth, and I'll back it up here. Well, I think I'm backing it up here. Uh, maybe I'm not. Um, the first truth is this. Here we go. The first truth should sign or signal a prompted change in our thinking about why Jesus did miracles. They, they really highlight the compassion. Sometimes we get lost, don't we, in the meaning of the six water pots here in our text before us. Why were there six? What was really inside? What was it truly water? And why, what, why did they... Why did Jesus have to turn it into wine? And as independent fundamental Baptists, we get all tripped up about what, what kind of wine was it? Was it inebriating? Was it intoxicating? Was it a grape juice? And sometimes we lose the fact, we lose our way. The idea of miracles is that God is doing great things in order to impress those around him with who he was and that he loves, loves us with an everlasting love. So let's not get lost in terms of the big picture. Uh, we uh, often do that, and we get all wrapped up in our discussions, especially this first miracle, because it involves a beverage called wine. And we get all tangled up. We can't see the big picture. God came and did these signs, these wonderful semyon, that he might impress us with who he is, and that he came with a compassionate heart to take care of our greatest need. He's beginning to develop a case for that, that Jesus is both merciful and master, both gracious and divine, and it's not difficult for him to do this minor miracle in terms of the many that he did. And never forget, God never took a bow after any of his miracles as if to say, are you really impressed with me? No, he did it so that we might, we might come to the cross and understand the greatest miracle of all. He's doing all this in, in prospect of the greatest miracle of all, that he died on the cross and rose again from the dead. So the first point here is that these signs point to a change in our perspective about why God did miracles at all. Secondly, I think this first miracle signals a change in Christ's ministry. He is now moving into the public eyes, collecting now his, his closest team, his, his disciples. He's coming out of obscurity. He's, 
He's now moving into the public arena for three years. He is uh, on purpose making a case for who he is. And he's God himself. He's going public after 30 years of a quiet life as the son of a carpenter. And often they would say when they were astounded by the miracles of Christ, is not this what? The carpenter's son. Well, he's more than that. And the Lord will definitely make a case for that. He's at a wedding, isn't he? Verse 1, the third day after the events in chapter 1, of course, the announcement, the choosing of the disciples, he's in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. He's taking his disciples, he's moving forward now, he's changing the way he ministers. He's beginning to move into the public eye. There's a dramatic change, no longer in the carpenter shop, no longer at home for the most part in Nazareth. In fact, he will center his, his focus of ministry will be in the location of Capernaum. And again, no longer hiding in the wilderness, tempted in the wilderness. He's again among the people celebrating a wedding. This town is five to eight miles north of Nazareth, where he did grow up. And no doubt the married couple here in question uh, is known by Jesus, or at least been invited. Jesus invited. Uh, uh, Jesus was invited with his disciples to come. Probably an acquaintance of Nathaniel, since this was very near his home place. And Jesus may well have known this couple. Seems as if Mary is somehow part. She has a role to play. She may be, uh, you know, the wedding coordinator. For all we know, uh, she is least concerned about a major issue, a need as I mentioned before, uh, that uh, occurs surprisingly. No surprise to Jesus. He's there providentially. But uh, we see that, uh, that the, they, they run out of wine. The staple, of course, in that part of the world at that time was wine. Many vineyards in that area. And uh, they were out. And that's a tremendous faux pas. That could start a family feud right there at the wedding. <laughs> to run out of something. And, and the guests, I don't know if they were beginning to bang their glasses on the table. I don't know if they were doing that or not. But Mary certainly, who had a role to play in this, was a little bit concerned about the fact that there was nothing to serve the guests in terms of liquid. And so uh, it's fascinating to me that she comes to, of all people, Jesus. Why do you think that is? She says in verse 3, she says this, Jesus said, uh, and she came to Jesus. She, John doesn't mention her, her by name, but of course we know it's Mary. And she said unto Jesus, they have no wine. Why do you reckon it is that Mary went to her eldest son and explained the need to him? What does she know about Jesus? What secret has she been holding in her heart for 30 years? What does she know about him that many people do not? That he is indeed the Son of God, the King of Israel, the Messiah. He knew that she knew, and she knew that he knew. The question this morning is, do you know who he is? And who do you go to? In your times of need, it seems like we have a list of friends that we call, maybe a couple banks on our list, a couple credit cards. Let's go through the checklist. When I get in a crisis, I'm going to, oh yeah, maybe we ought to pray about it. Well, Mary 
goes right to Jesus. Is that the habit of your life? That's just an applicational point. She comes to Christ because I think she knows he's the only person who could handle the crisis. She's the only one, he's the only one that really could handle this. And he is never to be our last resort. He is at this wedding providentially. And I like to connect dots in Scripture because the Bible begins with his presence at a wedding. The marriage ceremony between Adam and Eve was his design and his institution. And Christ starts out human history with a wedding. And then at the start, the inception of his public ministry, there's another wedding. And he honors that wedding with his presence because a wedding is symbolic of this deep human relationship that is, is designed by God to be deep and fulfilling. And it's God's idea. And it represents his own deep love for the church, his bride, pictured as the church in the Bible, and time will end, at least this dispensation in time, will end with another wedding while the church is gathered. There's a wedding in heaven, right? Are you ready for that wedding? Are you getting ready? And Christ will be there, serving the elements for us there. And there's a wedding coming, so we see the bookends of human history are connected to the symbol of this deep shared relationship. And here is Christ at a wedding as he begins this earthly ministry. And he's there. And I love to connect the theological themes of Scripture. So here he is. It makes sense to me that he's there, not by accident. And he's not disaffected or disinterested. Have you ever been to a wedding where you said, man, I can't wait till this is over or this is going on forever? No, he's tuned in. He knows the couple. He knows what's going on, and uh, he loves the idea of weddings. He honors them, and he's always the guest of honor at every wedding. And uh, it's his first institution by divine fiat, and I know he should be, whether you invite him or not, put him on the guest list or not, he should be at every Christian wedding, the guest of honor. Amen? And ladies... I just throw this in for free. <clears throat> it matters at your wedding that you reflect his eternal purpose for the institution of marriage. It ought to be holy, a beautiful picture of his own love for the church. It ought to be that reciprocal love for the bride. It ought, a wedding is a testimony service of God's grace to the bride, the church. It's reflection of his holy love for us. And girls, what you wear, sing, serve, should all be to the glory of God. Your wedding, are you listening, is not about you. It's about Him. That was for free, all for free. God is uniquely interested in weddings, for they speak of His love for us. Well, Jesus is here, public place, knowing that there would be Probably a bit of a problem. He knew all things in advance. That this would be a perfect place, time to demonstrate both his divine power and his divine compassion. So Mary again, verse 3 says, uh, Son, they have no wine. If this were a Methodist church or a Presbyterian church, we'd probably just keep flying right now. But since it isn't, and we're Baptists and we're concerned about what is this they're serving. 
Uh, it's oinos is the only Greek word used for truly just almost exclusively. This word is used in the New Testament. You know what wine means? It means wine. That's what it means. It can encompass everything from grape juice to highly intoxicating beverages. But it's the product of the grape. They have no wine. And let me just make a brief observation about this word because I'm sure in the hearts of some of you it's perhaps a stumbling block. This word, again, comprehends everything from grape juice to highly inebriating beverages. Uh, what it means is simply wine. As we look at the context, the staple of the, uh, the, uh, those that lived in those days, uh, and you, you like to sometimes, as fighting fundamentalists, wring every drop of intoxicating beverage out of the pages of Scripture, but it's not possible. Why do I say that? Not only was it a standard staple of those living in that day, uh, they had no refrigeration. They would try at times to put new wine into wineskins that would expand uh, over days. But grape juice in those days, in a warm climate, without refrigeration, began to ferment when? Immediately. After it was uh, probably squeezed from the grapes and made into a liquid, they would, because of that, they would take it and make it appropriate even for children to drink. They would mix it with water from one-tenth to one-third water. It had a double effect in that it, uh, it, uh, it lessened the intoxica intoxicating factor to the wine as well as it helped to purify the water. Water was a difficult thing in many places and times to come by. So the folks would dilute uh, this grape juice as it fermented with water to make it suitable, even for children. Table wine, they would call it. But to say that these early Hebrews and the ancients never drank wine is just not to be true to Scripture. How else do you think Noah got drunk? Lot, we could go right down the list. Nabal was a drunkard. What, is, what was he drinking? Well, they had, a, they had wine that they would drink. It had a small percentage of alcohol content, and when it was ingested in large amounts, in large quantities, it could produce drunkenness. And the Lord explicitly, are you here, still out there? The Lord explicitly condemns drunkenness in the Bible. How do I know that? Well, because the, the examples of Scripture in Genesis 9, Deuteronomy 21, Rome, uh, Proverbs 20, Proverbs 23, Romans 13, 1 Corinthians 5, Galatians 5.18, be ye not drunk with wine. Uh, Proverbs tells us wine is a mocker. Strong drink is raging, and whosoever is deceived thereby is what? Not wise. The Bible says at the end of our context here, verse 11, this beginning of miracles, uh, no, back up to verse 10, and here's, the, here's the master of ceremonies that comes to Jesus after the good wine is given to them as, as, as the, the, the new wine, or excuse me, the first wine runs out. <laughs> they taste this heavenly, this heavenly brew, if I can use this word. There's no, I, I'm going to get to this, I do not believe there was any fermenting quality to what Jesus created. But he comes, verse 10, to, uh, to, to the, the good master comes and says, I don't understand this. Every man at the beginning thus set forth good wine, 
And when men have well drunk, those two words together simply can mean what? When they have drunk freely until their senses have become dull, then we serve the poorer quality. But this is God's creation out of water. Doesn't even use grapes. And it's good wine. Again, oinos, that word referring to the product of the vine. This is good. Good. This isn't moonshine. This is heavenly wine. And God created it out of these pots, six pots of water. Do you know they were pots not used to hold wine? They were sitting there at the feast because of the Jews' mosaic code about cleansing before they ate and other ceremonial cleansings. And they were, they were, they were made out of stone. They believed that to make something out of clay was too close to the earth. This was a, 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 really a ceremonial cleansing, of washing of the hands and so forth before they ate. And these stone pots held 18 to 27 gallons of water apiece. The Lord is going to provide enough wine for the feast. And it's going to be heavenly wine without any corruption, any decay, pollution, fermentation in it. And it's going to knock their, knock their socks off, so to speak. Because when they drink it, they say, this is amazing. We've never tasted anything this great. So it is. The two primary words for wine in the Old Testament are yayin and tirosh, meaning to ferment and to possess. The ancients knew what wine is and had a power to do that. There is no need, I'm going to just put this in because we're, I'm not trying to get too far off the trail here, but there is no need in my estimation for a Christian in our time and age to drink intoxicating beverages. Why? We've got great water sources, clean water. We've got better medicines, Timothy, than what they had in those days where Paul recommended a little wine for his stomach's sake. Try that as an excuse, but it doesn't work anymore. We've got great medicines for stomach ailments. We have a command not to let our good be evil spoken of. We have a, also a concern that as we look at this table wine compared to the wines that are manufactured today, there's a whole different ball game. The wines that are distilled and produced today have a greater measure of inebriating qualities. They're not even in comparison to these wines, not that it excuses drunkenness in any dispensation of time. And then we have a command not to cause our brother to stumble. What would you do if I showed up and kind of had a beer can fall out of my truck as I pulled in. Pastor, I guess it's okay. It's okay. So I have, and Romans 14 says, you ought not do anything that causes your brother to stumble. And so it is, I a few months ago wrote an, an article giving you 10 or 11 reasons why I don't think you ought to drink today. I do not believe that this was a fermented version of wine that God created. It was not. It was the best tasting grape juice ever. 
And I, and I know, I know that there are folks that get all wrapped up about this. Um, pastor, I've been asked, what, what, if, what if you get to the marriage supper of the Lamb and the attendants in heaven give you some wine to drink? What are you going to do then? <laughs> well, again, I believe it will be the best tasting oinos ever. And it won't be inebriating. It will be God's vintage, pure and clean. Some of you are, because it's kind of a, a trend today, uh, because the Bible isn't perhaps explicit about drinking, it is explicit about drunkenness. The only way to get <clears throat> drunk is to start by drinking. I've never known a drunkard that wasn't first a drinkard. And so why take the first, first taste? Robin and I, and I, I don't have a lot of drunkards in my family tree, but when I married into Robin's, she sadly has many in her extended family, don't know the Lord, and have been captured by this intoxicating and addictive substance. And we could take you, sadly, to many uh, graveyards around Cass County in Indiana, and Robin with a tear in her eye, could talk about uncles whose lives were destroyed and captivated and dominated by booze. And she would say, there's uncle so-and-so. There's uncle so-and-so died as an alcoholic. We could take you to the house of her brother who has ruined a marriage, not all because of wine or booze, but largely because of addictive, destructive behaviors that come from alcohol abuse. We could take you uh, in Indiana to the VA hospital where bed after bed after bed, there are soldiers who have been succumbed to the addictive habits of drinking booze. It'll kill you. And so there's many reasons, I believe, we ought not ever even consider drinking or leaning towards drinking wine or any other intoxicating beverage. Where was I? Well, we're back in point number two. Uh, the first miracle signals a change in Christ's ministry. He's now moving into the public eye. I, I sometimes chuckle when I think about uh, the man who was totally addicted to alcohol. And he was a carpenter. And he came. I heard the story one time. He came to work. And he had been saved for a couple of weeks and decided to please the Lord and not to cause any others to stumble. He said, I, I can drink. It doesn't bother me. What about your children? What about your grandchildren? We set an example. He came to work and he, he decided he was not going to drink anymore as a testimony to his family and his co-workers who knew this story was in the Bible said, Aha, uh -huh, it's okay to drink. Jesus turned water into wine. Got real quiet. He thought about it a second. He says, I'm not sure what kind of beverage the Lord made in John chapter 2, but I know one thing. Are you listening? In my house, God turned Budweiser into furniture. What may be permissible is not always advisable. And so you walk the high road, do what's right, set an example. The miracle was a sign, significant change in Christ's ministry. He's out in the public, 
interacting with the larger community. He's also, uh, this miracle to me indicates a change in his family relationship. This may surprise you uh, a little bit, but let's go on. Jesus, verse 4, said unto her, and this sounds rather rude, sounds rather harsh to us. Woman, is that any way to address your mother? Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. It's indicating to me a change in his family relationship. It seems harsh, doesn't it? Woman, to call his mother by this title. But we know that God is never unkind. He's never harsh. He's never rude. Those things are sinful. But this wasn't a cultural slight. In fact, to translate this simply, and I put it on the screen behind me, ma'am, what is this to me and to you? What, what is this concern about serving wine? What does that have to do with me or you? Jesus is firmly putting himself and his mother in a new light, a new relationship, a new place. I'm not your little boy at home anymore, although he's 30. I'm not your son to run to with personal problems. I'm about to embrace publicly the short journey to the cross. I have a mission. There's a looming mission that I now begin uh, to head into, and this will be the culmination of my eternal focus from God, the Father, and I'm embracing that now. What do we have to do? What does this concern have to do with you and me? I want you to interact, Mother. I want you to interact differently with me now. And there is a great gulf. She's, he's saying all these things by this little statement. To her, she's getting this. There's a great gulf fixed between me as a Messiah and as that boy that helped around the carpenter shop. And I want you to know that, dear lady, mother of mine. I am the Son of God. Takes away the sin of the world. She, she, know he's, she knows he's been announced as that by John the Baptist. I'm now, the Lord is saying by that statement in verse 4, cutting the apron springs. He's a, a, apron strings. And she, he is saying that politely. Woman, what does this concern have to do with us? A significant change in family relationships. And then we see there is uh, the first miracle here signals a change in public opinion about who Jesus is. He follows right away with an indication of his significant change in ministry focus. It kind of goes along with point three, but it's a little distinct. Verse four again, he's saying <clears throat> to, to his mother, Mine hour is not yet come. He politely puts a distance between his mother and himself. By that first statement, what does this have to do with my eternal mission? My hour is not yet come. From here on out through the book of John, we're going to see that everything has implications to the cross. Implications to his eternal mission. Mine hour, speaking of what? The hour in which he would go to the cross. That hour. It's not yet time for that. And he knew that beginning miracles would change the public opinion about who he was. It would polarize folks between, they either hate him or loved him. Based on these 
signs and wonders. And John calls them signs that point to his divine ministry as a Savior. Wonders is the response that we have to these, uh, to these miracles. And of course, miracles has that display of power. And John calls them signs on purpose. And he knows that as soon as he starts doing wondrous things, there's going to be a following that will explode. He's at this private wedding and a small group of friends. And he says, mine hour is don't push me. <laughs> and I've often wondered what happens between verses 4 and 5. In fact, I thought about passing a 3 by 5 card out to all the ladies, just the ladies, here this morning. I know we're not supposed to preach on the white, the white of Scripture, just the black print, right? We're, we can't interpret the white. But there's something that happens in the verse, verses between 4 and 5, is he has just in a sense chided her or reset the family context. And then his mother turns. I love the study of Scripture. His mother turns to the servants. This is not the word for slave. It's the word for servants, those who are attending, attendants of the wedding. <laughs> After he says, what concern of, of mine is this? He says, or she says to the attendants, whatever he says to you, you do that. Ladies, what's going through her mind after he says what he says in verse 4 that would make her say what she says in verse 5? Since this isn't Sunday school, I won't have you raise your hands, right? Jesus says, my hour for death and subsequent glorification is not yet. It's, not, it's starting, but it's not fully come. And I don't want to get on the fast track because my hour, Mary, my hour is not yet here fully. He would say to his brothers in chapter 7, verse 6, my hour is not yet come. Chapter 8, verse 20, teaching at the temple, he was opposed and no one could lay their hands on him, for his hour was not come. Then we get to the end, or towards the middle of the book of John, chapter 12, verse 23. Nearing his final days, he says to the Gentiles, The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. And then in the upper room, serving the elements at the Passover to his closest group of disciples, he says, The hour is come, chapter 13. And verse 1, and then in the most tender prayer that the Lord ever offers, the high priestly prayer in chapter 17 and verse 1, he says, Father, the hour is come. But we're back at the start of the ministry. It's a matter of curiosity to me, and I don't think we can be dogmatic about what Mary's thinking because we simply don't know. But by her response to the servants, she knows that her son can do something about the problem. And even though... Here's what I'm thinking. I may be wrong. I think Mary um, knows who Jesus is more clearly than almost anyone. Joseph seems to be out of the picture by now, may have passed away. Mary, who raised this boy from infancy, knows better than anybody who he is. And as a mother in that culture, she has no greater desire but to see her son explode on the, 
public sphere as the Son of God, the Messiah. She wants him to be identified. And she's probably wondering, why has it taken 30 years? Why have you held in check your divine power for 30 years? Tell the people. That's what I'm thinking. And then secondly, I'm thinking, she's probably thinking as a woman, that's great, Lord, that you are separating yourself from me. I know you're the Messiah. I know you know you're the Messiah. And that there's a different relationship between me and you. I know that. You're growing up, starting the public ministry. I know that, but we still don't have any wine. Right, ladies? What am I going to tell the folks when I, go, when I go back in there? That your hour hasn't come? But you who know the need of mankind also know the need of the banquet table. You see God's compassion side? And I can almost, now again, don't quote me on this. I'm speculating. But because of what happens next, after Jesus says, woman, what is it to you and what is it to me, this concern, my hour? I'm, I'm not ready to walk into the public sphere and be fully known for who. I'm not going to make a public announcement. John pointed to me, but it's a progressive reality. And I'm not there yet, and I don't want to do too many. <laughs> I'm kind of speculating. But I can see him as he looks at his mother after saying what he says in verse 4. He pulls her to his side, gives her one of these half hugs, right? Mom, I'm going to take care of this. And I can see her saying, whatever he tells you to do, you do it. God never distances himself between the need of the moment and the need of mankind. There's never a disconnect between what you need on Monday and what God provided at the cross. Remember what was it, who was it that said, the astronaut that said this is just a small step. What's the quote? One small step when they stepped on the moon for man and one giant leap for mankind. The Lord is making a giant leap at the inception of his ministry. It's going to be a focused, really a focused design that will lead to the cross. And he's seeing this first of his miracles as a small step in that direction. But he wants us to know not only is he God uh, who can handle anything, He's also the God that provides for us eternal salvation. And then that little phrase that I think, and we'll close with this, that little phrase that ought to, every servant ought to have this as a motto, right? Whatever God tells you to do, you just do it. I'm going to ask you a question as we finish up here. This first miracle it wasn't about God saying, well, isn't this amazing? Look at me. No, it is about us being pressed with the reality that this one who can churn, churn water into wine and cast stars in the sky at a word, this one God came to us, wrapped himself, robed himself in flesh, and went to the cross in order that the greatest miracle of all, that sinners could be saved, would be accomplished. This God loves us. And because he's God, because he can do everything uh, that he says he can do, 
We are to look at him and we are to bow our knee in obedience and simply take that same attitude that Mary preached a little message there. Whatever he tells you to do, you do it. Are you fighting God? He said, well, I'm in church, preacher. What I mean is, are you fighting God in any area of your life? Treating him as less than sovereign God, less than who he is. Mary knew he, who, who he was. And, he turned, and she turned to those servants and simply said, whatever, whatever, whatever he tells you to do, you do it. And then that little phrase at the end of the verse 11 God began to manifest at this first miracle, began to manifest forth His glory. That is the brilliance of all His perfections. Began to become unfurled as He stepped out of obscurity and started doing these wonders all over Palestine, all over Israel. And His disciples believed on Him. Let's pray together, shall we? Father, thank You for this Reminder that you are always lacing together the ministry of the cross with uh, the validations of your power, that you're worthy to be believed upon, to be accepted. You are uniquely worthy, uniquely qualified as the Son of God that taketh away, the Lamb of God that taketh away. Help us never to forget that. You've come. With that design, divine design, to take away the sin of the world. We are so humbled by that. And we are all recipients of that great living water. Far superior to any human beverage for sure. The living water. We've tasted it and found out that it's good. (laughs) Satisfying. Thank you for being our Savior. Thank you for joining us today. Please tune in each week for new messages from Bible Baptist Church in Hampton, Georgia. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face to shine upon you.